Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we are joined by community pastor John Sesnuski as we continue our series, Bumper Sticker Theology. For more information, please visit us at www.communitychristian.org. And remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Oh, well, good morning, and thanks for having me. All right, yeah. Thank you, Patrick, for the introduction. Uh, actually, Ian, uh, Ian Simpkins, your usual teaching pastor, community pastor here at the Yellow Box, uh, he asked me to fill in uh, a while back. I guess he's on vacation in Arizona overlooking the Grand Canyon, where I understand that today it's 108 degrees. <laughs> Whew, how about that? So better him uh, than all of us. Well, hey, let's get started. I want to start talking about kids. Now, you don't have to have kids to engage or, or to think about this, but because we were all kids at one point or another, but I want to talk about the phases that kids go through. All right, so just kind of go back in time. You were a kid. Maybe you have kids. Uh, there's a number of phases. Like one of the phases that kids go through, all kids, is the no phase. No. No. I have three teenagers now, and I love this phase. And I, I would exasperate them a little bit. My wife didn't like that. But I would do something like this, and I would say, stop that. No. Pick that up. No. Go to your room. No. Do you want ice cream? No. Got ya. You know, she's like, you got to stop doing that. They don't know any better. But that's one of the phases. There is also the, the mine phase. Everything is mine. Even if it's yours, it's now mine, 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 mine. And then there was the I only want my mommy phase. Uh, my youngest, he's 13 now. Man, does he love his mom. And anytime my wife Amy would go out of town for a couple nights, he would just mope around the house like, where's mom? When's mom coming home? Where's mom? Where's mom? When's she coming home? And I'd be like, look, I changed your diaper. I fed you. I read you story. I, like, what am I you want your mom? You know, come on. Any other dads feeling that? All right. And uh, then there's the do-it-myself phase. How many of you are in the do-it-myself phase right now? You have young kids, and they want to do everything. They want to prove to you. They want to prove to themselves, I can do it all by myself. And they want to dress themselves. That's pretty harmless. It's, it's a little bit funny. I mean, they want to dress themselves. They, they want to feed themselves. Oh, man. When, you know, when our kids were young, they wanted to feed themselves. We had to put like a drop cloth, you know, all around them, like 10 feet in every direction because there was a debris field. They want to feed themselves. That's what that's like. And then girls in particular, they want to put makeup on all by themselves. That's not even makeup. That's a Crayola marker. I hope it's washable, you know. But here's the thing about these phases. I don't think we ever really grow out of them. I mean, just think about that. We don't really ever grow. I think even the, the, the do-it-myself phase, I don't think I've ever really grown out of this. See, see if you can relate. Uh, we want to make it vocationally all by myself. I, I want to make it financially all by myself. And I think it's something just uniquely American. We celebrate the stories 
Uh, we congratulate the underdog when, when we see themselves, you know, in a hopeless situation, you know, just sort of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, you know. We applaud and we're like, you did it all by yourself. When the uh, great French philosopher, uh, Alec, uh, Alexi, I guess is how it's pronounced, Tocqueville, uh, he came to the United States and he really got to observe the people of America. And he got to observe us. He, he described it as a rugged individualism. And here, in part, is what he said. And, and i got to warn you, it's kind of like a, a, a gut punch, for me anyway. He said, each of them is withdrawn into himself, is almost unaware of the fate of the rest. Mankind, for him, consists in his children and his personal friends. As for the rest of his fellow citizens, they are near enough, but he does not notice them. He touches them, but feels nothing. He exists in and for himself. You don't need to give me a show of the hand or even an eye of the head, but might that be true of us? Might be true of us. And so that brings us back to the series uh, that we started last week called Bumper Sticker Theology. And this series was born out of the realization that much of what is commonly thought to be just good theology as it turns out, is not good theology. It's not even biblical. Sometimes it's actually based on just popular thinking, these these colloquialisms, these short, nice, you know, cute little sayings that are on the adhesive piece of paper that are affixed to the back of a bumper of a car. And so every week we're asking ourselves, there's going to be four of these in total, and we're asking ourselves, is this saying, is this expression, is it biblically sound, Or does it just sound biblical? Is it biblically sound, or does it just sound biblical? And today's bumper sticker is a good one. Here it is. God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who help themselves. You said it. I've said it. You've thought it. I've thought it. You believed it. I believed it. I won't even ask for a show of hands. I already know that the majority of people in the United States of America believe that God helps those who help themselves We believe it's biblical. We believe that these words are actually in the Bible. And I know that because of some research that the Barna Group had done recently. They found that seven out of ten people think this quote right here is from the Bible. Uh, Further research says 68% of all Christians, all Christ followers in the United States of America, believe that this is Scripture, the Word of God. 75% of all Americans believe this to be in the Bible. And since we believe it's in the Bible, we say it. We say God helps those who help themselves. But why do we even want to say that? Why do we even want to say that? Our team, including Ian, we got together and we started just brainstorming, you know, what are the reasons that we want to say this? And, And I think one of the reasons, three that we came up with, one of them is is that I think we mistakenly think, we forget that this is not true, but we think that we have made it all by ourselves. I'm self-made. The money, the wealth, the job, the vocation, the family, I did it all by myself. And because we mistakenly think that we did it all by ourselves, we look around, and anybody who seems to be struggling or not really kind of, you know, measuring up, we think, well, they should just take a a page out of our book. They should just follow our example because 
you know, then, then they'll, then they'll be like us. Then they'll be okay. And so maybe we say it for that reason. Or sometimes I think we say God helps those who help themselves as a way of feeling less responsible for people that we see in need. I mean, just think around. I mean, you've seen it. I've seen it. We've all seen the homeless person, you know, standing by the side of the road. And, and we're like, should I, shouldn't I? And then we're like, no. We say, you know, God helps those who help themselves as a way of just making ourselves feel better. We can kind of just sort of dismiss that with the blinders. I don't want to pay attention to that. Or, or maybe we say God helps those who help themselves out of frustration when we see other people being lazy and, and, and taking advantage of, of the system. So there are lots of reasons we say God helps those who help themselves, but because it's not in the Bible, we know we're going to debunk this. It's not scriptural. It's not biblical. Where did this saying or this expression even come from? And so our team, we did some research, Google, that's a good place to start. And uh, we, we did, we, this goes all the way back to 500 BC. Uh, how many of you remember Aesop Fables? You remember the book Aesop Fables? Yeah, I still remember the book and, and I read, read it to myself. My parents read that to me. Well, there's one fable where uh, the character prays to the Greek god Hercules by the way, there is no Greek god, Hercules. But he prays to this mythological god. <clears throat> and Hercules responds with a charge to get back to work because, he says, the gods help them that help themselves. Now, that was 2,500 years ago in a fable. A fable of all things. And yet we still say it. And we still think it. But how did that phrase or that expression ever get to the United States of America? Well, we'd have to give credit to Benjamin Franklin. Uh, that's a name that most of us recognize. Uh, in Poor Richard's Almanac, which he wrote, uh, he is quoted as saying, God helps those who help themselves. And so for almost 300 years in the United States of America, we have come to believe that this is true, that this is biblical, that God helps those who help themselves. Well, that might explain why this is in sort of the American consciousness, but why do so many Christians believe this to be true? Why do so many Christians believe this to be the word of God? Well, if you were here last week, uh, Tammy Melchina, I think was your teaching pastor, and she probably uh, communicated that this really goes back to something that was misinterpreted or misquoted from something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church and the Apostle Paul had written to the church, and we think maybe through a combination of, of just sort of uh, good intentions and, and a bit of the telephone game, it, it got misquoted. And I think the same is true for this particular expression, today's bumper sticker. And this would come from something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. 2,000 years ago, he said, For even when, you were with, even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. That's as close as we could get to God helps those who help themselves. But that's not really what this means. To understand what this means, we have to understand the context and, and the culture. And so back then, church communities uh, like ours, they would gather in a town or a village, a neighborhood, and, and Christ followers who are able to work and contribute, they would literally put some of their funds like into a pot, into a kitty, into a benevolence fund, if you will. And so when there was a need, and a significant need, and you weren't able to work, or you weren't able to provide for your family, then you could be a, a recipient from that particular fund. 
But back in this culture, some 2,000 years ago in Thessalonica, there was a group of people who were capable of working who, I'm not doing it. I'm going to be lazy. I don't think this applies to me, but yet I still want to receive from it. And so Paul, among other things, he is writing, and he really calls this group of people out, the ones who are just like, no, I'm not doing it. Now, Paul's not saying that everybody has to go out there and pull themselves up by their bootstraps, you know, all by themselves. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is he's setting up some healthy boundaries. And, and he understands who Jesus was and how Jesus interacted and, and all the things. that he, And he's telling the people, no, it's okay. When there's a real need like that, we're going to be Christ to those people. We're going to come alongside them. We're going to provide it and we're going to help. But he's saying this is not an excuse for not working. Essentially, if I could just paraphrase, Paul Paul is saying, hey, if you are capable mentally and physically to work and you don't work, no food for you. You don't get to eat. And that's just the way it's going to be. Does that make sense? All right, that was the culture. That was the context. But God helps those who help themselves is not found anywhere in the Bible. It's just not true. So if it doesn't say that in the Bible, in God's mandate, his theology is not a self-help theology then we have to ask ourselves, then, what does the Bible say about who God helps and and how God helps? Well, there's probably all kinds of places in Scripture that we could turn to, but our team, as we were thinking about this, we we landed on on the Old Testament. And if you have your Bibles, you can open them up uh, to the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, but we're going to put the verses on the screen as well. Now, let me just give some explanation of of Proverbs 31. Uh, Proverbs 31, all of Proverbs really is a a collection of wise sayings. I do want us to know that it is Holy Spirit inspired to each and every one of the authors. But chapter 31 is a little bit different. And the author of chapter 31 is, is really recounting or writing some wisdom that he received from his mother via the Holy Spirit. And he's writing these things down. And if you'll allow me to go a little bit further, and maybe this will just help us remember Proverbs 31, it kind of reads, at least initially, like, well, kind of like the Forrest Gump movie. Do you remember when Forrest Gump is sitting on the park bench and he's like, my mama always told me. That's how Proverbs 31 really starts out. And so if you'll allow me to paraphrase, he says, my mama always told me that good leaders don't chase after women. My mama always told me the good leaders don't drink too much. And my mama always told me the good leaders don't numb their feelings. Sounds wise, sounds biblical, and it certainly is. But then we get to the really good stuff. Verses 8 and 9, again, quoting some sound spiritual wisdom via the Holy Spirit to his mother uh, to this paper. He says, make sure, and he's writing to you and I, make sure you speak out on behalf of those who have no voice and defend all of those who have been passed over. Make sure to open your mouth, to judge fairly, to stand up for the rights of the afflicted and the poor. How does that sound? Now, there are lots of places in the Bible where we are told to be still and to be slow to speak. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, just two weeks ago here on stage, we had some elementary kids, didn't we? And they were reciting scripture. My dear brothers and sisters, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So why are we now all of a sudden to speak out? Well, in two verses, I mean, we're told that we're to speak out. 
And in, in two verses, God urges us to say something, to speak out, and to open our mouths. And do you see why? We're to do it when we see people who are in need, people who are overlooked, people who don't have a voice. And that reminds me of a speaker we had here, even on this stage, a few years back. Um, And he had directed an amazing documentary titled Among the Discarded. Maybe you were here, maybe you read this, maybe you've seen this. But he spent a month, the director, the author of this, he spent a month uh, really living as a homeless person on Skid Row, in the streets, in a homeless community in, in, in the city of Los Angeles. And in this film, he recounted that surprisingly, the most difficult thing to endure was the psychological effect of people completely ignoring and overlooking his very existence. He says the hardest part of that experience was being passed over, ignored, discarded over and over and over again. I won't ask you to say out loud, but chances are we all greeted people out in the lobby. We're like, hey, hi, how are you? Good morning, hello. At least we gave each other a head nod, right? We made eye contact. But what do you do when you see somebody who's homeless? You know what most people do? Somebody's homeless is here, and they're just like, I'm just going to walk away. I don't, I don't even want to make eye contact. And that's exactly, that's exactly what he experienced. And that's what we're, we're being told here in Proverbs 30. Like, that is not who we are called to be. And so not only is the saying, God helps those who help themselves, not true, but I believe God is asking each and every one of us to speak out and to open our mouths and to stand up for those who can't help themselves. The voiceless, the passed over, the poor, the homeless, the oppressed. And why? Why should we? Because God loves everyone dearly. Without exception, he loves you and he loves that person equally. And I think it's also important to note that God is calling us to judge fairly. That's what the author of Proverbs 31 says, that we're to judge fairly. And that means that we're supposed to look beyond what we can see at just face value. We have to be intentional and and look beyond that. When we see someone struggling in poverty or we see somebody experiencing homelessness, um, judging fairly means we don't see them as the sum total of their poor choices. We can't do that. But we need to work to understand the many influences that are contributing to that and causing them to be in this predicament right now. And, and I think a good way to demonstrate what I'm saying is to share an illustration uh, from uh, Malcolm Gladwell and in his book, Outliers. Now, I, I don't know if this is now curriculum in the state of Illinois, but I know in the Plainfield schools, this is like required reading for, for high school, is it not? Maybe you've seen this book, Outliers. But Gladwell, he, he talks about a number of stories that have one thing in common, and he calls it uh, the, the advan- that advantages accumulated. So the advantages that you and I have in life get accumulated and they multiply one advantage on top of another. And here's what he says in particular. He says, those who are successful, in other words, are most likely to be given the kinds of special opportunities that lead to further success. And one of my favorite examples, really easy to remember from this book, is how someone in in the country of Canada becomes a great hockey player. Now, I think most of us would think that in order to become a great hockey player, it's all about talent and hard work and practice and the amount of hours on the ice, you know, maybe the coaching. And I'm sure all of those things contribute to that and play into that. 
But what his observations and his studies have, conclu- have concluded is that uh, for, for every elite team, hockey team in the country of Canada, 40%, 40% of all their players were born between January and March. 30% were born between April and, uh, and June. 20% between July and September. And only 10% of all great hockey players in Canada were born between October and December. But why? I mean, you have to ask yourself, like, why or how could that even be? Well, Gladwell continues, and he says, the explanation. The explanation for this is quite simple. It has nothing to do with astrology. That's a good thing. Uh, Nor is it anything magical about the first three months of the year. It's simply that in Canada, the eligibility cutoff for age class hockey is January 1. So a boy who turns 10 on January 2nd could then be playing alongside someone who doesn't turn 10 until the end of the year, like December 31st. And at that age, in pre-adolescence, a 12-month gap in age represents an enormous difference in physical maturity. Wow. So if you're born between January and March in Canada, you have an advantage through no effort of your own. (laughs) No effort of your own. You're just naturally going to be better because you're older and, and, and physically you're bigger than you know, anybody else on the team. And this example, it might seem silly. It might seem silly, but if something as simple as the month in which you were born is going to determine whether you're an all-star ice hockey player or not, what other things should we look at? I mean, think about this. How much more might mental illness or a socioeconomic status, or race, the color of a person's skin, increase or decrease what Gladwell calls the special opportunities that lead to further success. So let me give you a few more things that he thinks are outliers, all right? And this, this I think, will be very telling. How about the fact that 25% of the homeless population in the United States of America suffers from severe mental illness. Does that change our perspective of why they're homeless? How about this one? Did you know that 60%, 60% of all men incarcerated in the state of Illinois grew up in the foster care system? Does that change your perspective? It changes mine. Or might we see prostitution differently if we understood that 80% of all people engaging in prostitution today were sexually abused as children? Wow. We have to look beyond what's just in front of our eyes. And we have to understand. The, The author of Proverbs says that we're to judge fairly. Judge fairly means we recognize there are factors simply beyond pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps that influence outcomes both positively and negatively. Judging fairly means we recognize that we didn't do it on our own and neither will other people. So let's flip the script, okay? Can we do that? So here's a saying that I hope we'll all take away today. This is the one we want to tweet. This is the one, you know, we post on social media. God helps those who can't, cannot, can't help themselves. And do you know how I know that statement's true? Because when I couldn't help myself, God helped me. And when you couldn't help yourself, God helped you. 
Never forget that when you and I were far, far, far away from God, when we were helpless to do anything on our own to reconcile ourselves with our Father and to have our sin forgiven, God stepped in through the person of Jesus. And the Apostle John, he he writes about this so beautifully in his first letter. He says, this is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. You see, God helped me when I couldn't help myself. And God helped you when you couldn't help yourself. And because God helped us, John, he goes on to say, this is why, this is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. Now, let me just be clear. I don't think John's saying that if we, if we miss an opportunity to help somebody in need that, that God's love is going to disappear from the world. No. And I also don't think that if we do turn a blind eye that somehow you know, we're not loved by God. I don't believe that to be true. That wouldn't be true of scripture. What I think he is saying that is if we are able and we don't allow God to use us to help those in need, then the evidence of God's love in our lives disappears. You see, so often God helps those who can't help themselves by using you and by using me. Sure, he can use his Holy Spirit, but he often uses you and he uses me. So what does it look like to practice real love? I mean, what what would that really look like? What does it mean to speak out loud and and, and to give a voice for those who don't have a voice? Well, we have an amazing program here. If I I were to pick anyone, like this is it, like up close and personal, and and it's Kids Hope Mentoring. And uh, we we were able to catch a story of Tom Ryan and, and his personal experience with Kids Hope, and here's Tom's story. My name is Tom Ryan. I've been attending Community Christian Church for six years, and I've been a Kids Hope mentor for two. I was struggling with the idea of mentoring because it meant that you were just, you were just focusing on one person instead of many. And then I heard someone talking about mentoring, and they said, don't worry about the big picture, just focus on one person. And this is the way Kids Hope mentoring works. It's really just a, it's, it's an undivided attention on one kid for one hour for every week for the school year. My very first day, I was a little nervous about meeting him at the classroom door because I hadn't seen him and he hadn't seen me. Ran over, gave me a big hug the first time he saw me. Um, at the end of that hour together, um, he said he can't wait to tell his mom about me. And I was only there for one day. Our typical activities will include just about everything that's kind of fun as far as we build models, we uh, color posters, and we build buildings, we make things out of paper. A short time ago, we built a pirate ship. It took us a while, but it was kind of fun because it was, it involved a lot of planning where like I like to have him think about what are we doing next week, what are we doing the week after. We sort of plan through, we talk about could he become an architect? And he really likes that idea because he likes to build, he likes houses. Um, So I thought, well, I could talk him through that and talk about what the steps would be. I never know if some of these things are getting through, but this time I did, because he came back to me one day out of the blue and said that he had talked to his mom about possibly becoming an architect someday, and his mom said she would help him be an architect. 
I knew that some of these things were getting through and he was talking about it with his mom. Another part of my mentoring time with my student that I really like is just chatting. I think during all of our activities, whether we're coloring or we're building a model or we're eating, we're always talking about just things about family. We feel like we know each other. We joke around. He gives me a hard time. I give him a hard time. A big part of volunteering is just showing up. Um, you don't have to be, you don't have to plan for days in advance on what you're going to do here. The thing you're doing isn't as important as the time you're spending. I think the school has gives us so much support. Um, the teachers do, the staff does, the principal does. It just feels like you're walking into your house. I mean, it's this place is very warm. The kids are great. It makes you feel happy walking in the door. Everybody that attends community is pre-qualified to do this kind of thing because you understand what it takes to make a difference in the world. I feel like the relationship that we build here between a student and a mentor really has a chance to change a kid's life. It's a powerful way. Powerful way to give somebody a voice, and uh, there's a few ways to contribute and to be a part of that. That's what this card is all about, and, and hopefully everybody's got one of these cards. Uh, there's three ways. You know, one, you can be a mentor just, just like he was, and uh, you spend one hour a week, one day a week during the school year uh, working alongside a student. You can be a prayer partner or a scholarship partner, and this will start back up in September, but now is the time to let us know if you would like to, to judge fairly in that way to be a part of that. And uh, you can check those boxes and you can turn them in a little bit when, when the buckets come your way. But we would love for you to be a part of that. My wife and I served as mentors for, for a number of years. And I remember the fourth grade student that I was paired up with at the start of the year, and I had a fourth grader at the time, my child could read just about anything. This child knew like two or three words in a sentence. It was painful. And so each week, it was one word and then two words and then one sentence and then two sentences and then one paragraph and two paragraphs. And by the end of the fourth grade, that child could use his voice and he read the entire diary of a wimpy kid to me. And it was a beautiful thing. And that's what I think it means to come alongside somebody in part. But how is God calling you? Maybe this is one way or or maybe there's some are, there are some others. But I think it's childish to think that any of us can do it ourselves. It's not true that God helps those who help themselves. On the contrary, God helps those who can't help themselves. And he uses people like you. And he uses people like me. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for uh, this challenge, this, this conviction, if you will, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would remove any obstacle or barrier from our past that would keep us from serving. God, help us to judge fairly. Help us to be agents of change, God. Help us to come alongside people that we see. And may we no longer say that, that, that you help those who, who can't help themselves. God, no, help us to understand who you've called us to be through Jesus. We love you. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.